0: by the name of Bruce Larson, was telling a story about a time that he took his wife and his young kids on a holiday. They were going to be spending their holiday at a national park, and so they were doing a lot of walking, a lot of hiking, and that sort of thing. And, and so they were, they were traveling outside of the park for a little bit, and this was in one of those big states in America where you have to drive like a long way to get somewhere. And as they were driving around, they, they saw a sign that said National, or er, sorry, let me get my notes pulled up here, that saw Naturalist Park three miles ahead. And so they're thinking, okay, that, that sounds good. Our kids have been riding around for quite a while and they could get out. We can go to this, this naturalist park and see kind of what, what it's like, see what kind of trails are there. And so they, they decide that they're going to do that. They start making their way there. They get about a, a mile from the park and they start seeing some people riding bikes from a distance, riding towards them. And as they get a little closer, they realize that not a single one of them is wearing a stitch of clothing, completely naked. It was in that moment that he realized that National, Natural Park, and Naturalist Park are two completely different things. And so as he passes these people with the bike, he just starts to freak out because like, his kids are in the back seat. And he's like, we've got to turn around. But you guys can just imagine, you can't turn around too soon, or that's just weird, right? And so it's like, how am I going to turn around? And like, he, so he goes, finally, lets the cyclist get ahead a little bit, turns around, and he just starts thinking to himself, I really hope my kids in the back seat don't see this. And so they're driving, they're heading on the way out of this park, going to a real park, and then his son in the back seat says, Dad, did you see that? And, like, can you just imagine the panic that starts getting up in the dad? Like, this conversation you're about to have to have, about to have to explain. And the dad says, yes, yeah, son, I saw that. He's like, yeah, none of them were wearing any helmets. <laughs> so, apparently, from where they were sitting in the car, that is all that they could see. Only thing that they could see was the heads. And for him, it's like, they're not wearing any helmets. He missed everything else. And, like, in, a, in this moment, like, having some limited perspective was a really good thing, right? Like, for the kid's sake, it was a really good thing that he couldn't quite see everything. But as we read through, as we read through Mark's gospel, he does not give us the opportunity to have a, a limited perspective of who Jesus is. And that, like, let's go ahead and stop the analogy because this can break down really quickly, okay? But, like, he gives us, like, a, a full view of who Jesus is. He lets us truly understand who Jesus is. This didn't happen when I practiced it. Now I just can't stop laughing about this thought of, he he wants us to see fully who Jesus is and what Jesus is like. And he doesn't give us this opportunity to have this limited perspective. He doesn't give us this opportunity just to see a little bit of who Jesus is. No, he gives us like, he's like, here's who Jesus is. Mark, almost more than any other gospel, as soon as Jesus jumps onto the pages of Scripture, he is letting us know who Jesus is. He is letting us know about the authority of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus. He's letting us know all about who he is. 11 verses in, we already see that Jesus is baptized and God speaks to him saying, you are my dearly loved son who brings me great joy. From there, there's healings, there's casting out demons, there's crazy teaching, there are things that are going on. Like Mark is not giving us this opportunity to have a limited perspective of who Jesus is. The Gospel of Mark gives us no option to question Jesus' authority or his divinity. And one of the things that we hear said about Jesus from time to time is, is he is just a, a good moral teacher. Anybody you know, heard someone say that? Sir, sure, we've, we've heard that before. If you actually read what Jesus taught, like there is no way that if he isn't God, there's no way we can say what he taught was good. Like some of the stuff he says is absolutely insane. If he is nothing more than a good moral teacher, if he doesn't rise from the dead, everything Jesus says about the resurrection is a lie. How can we believe anything else he says? Like if he isn't God, like there's nothing good about this. Like he's more than just this good moral teacher. Mark never gives us this opportunity to classify Jesus as this. And this story is one of, the times where we can see the full view of who Jesus is. We see his power, his authority, who he is like on full display for us. And as we read this story, what Mark is doing for us is really a fascinating literary device. Is he, is, he is making a bridge. From Mark 1, which is about a bunch of healings and Jesus getting onto the stage and on the scene, and then Mark 3, 2 and 3 are about Jesus has five confrontations with religious leaders. And so what we see is this is a bridge between the two because we actually have both of them in this story. And so, as we were divvying up this the uh, preaching schedule, like we uh, this wasn't going to be my text. And then we changed some things around, and I got really excited to teach this text. Because short of the resurrection, this is actually my favorite story in all the gospels. And so as I was like getting ready to preach this, I was like so excited, I can't wait to, to walk through this. So let's go ahead and dive in. Let's look at the friends, the first people that we see in Mark 2, verses 1 through 4. It says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house, was, the house he was staying, where he was staying, was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head, and they lowered the man down right in front of Jesus. Now, we don't know whose house this is. Like some suggest that it's it's Jesus's house. Some suggest that it's uh, James and John's house. Like we really don't know whose house this is, but what we do know is the house is packed. We know like people are are not only packed in the house, like they are surrounding around that. It says that you can't even get to the door. That's how busy this house is. Like things are are going all around. And so, so here are these friends. They bring them to the house where Jesus is and and they can't get to Jesus. So they go and they dig a hole through the roof and they let this guy down in front of Jesus so that he can gain an audience with Jesus. And I love this little like, detail that they lowered him down right in front of Jesus. Like, I just picture there's the three dudes on the roof and the one guy like, looking out the window, like, trying to tell them where to dig. Like, okay, not here, two steps to the left. No, take a step back to the right, go up a little bit. Like, just so this, this is just like where he lays down perfectly right in front of Jesus. But what would have happened is, we think about roofs in that day. They would have had these, these cross beams that went across the roof. Then they would have put like thatch on top of it. And then they would have packed and had like really compressed dirt on top. And so roofs were actually a place where, where a lot of people who worked at home would work. They would work out on their roof. Some nights, if it was a warm summer night, they'd sleep out on their roof. They would dry fruits. They would do different stuff on a roof. So like there would have been like a staircase or some kind of ladder that was going up for this roof, but it would have been a sturdy place where people could walk around, could, could do, and could be. Can you just picture for a minute though? Like these people who are listening to Jesus teach and all of a sudden the, the dirt just start falling from the roof. Like, can you just imagine the commotion that's going on in the house when this starts to happen? They're digging this hole. And like, I don't know if you're like me, but I have a hard time picturing the size of this hole. Like, usually when I think about the story, I'm like, oh, you know, something like this. But remember, this guy is laying on a mat. He's paralyzed. They're not flipping the mat sideways. It's got to be big enough hole that it can fit the whole mat straight down. And so we're talking four, five, six foot long. And two, three foot wide, like this is not a tiny little hole. Jesus or whoever's house this is, they are not getting their deposit back from this house. Like when we see this happening, like this is a massive hole and these friends are are doing this. They're willing to do whatever it takes so their friend can gain audience with Jesus. And last week, two weeks ago, we were uh, on holiday in Barcelona. And so like we had this, this day where we were actually walking around the city and we made, we as an I, made the terrible mistake of forgetting to pack our, our Ergo Baby, our baby carrier. So if you guys know anything about our family, we have two kids, we had one buggy. And so like walking around a city, we ended up walking 19 kilometers um, in Barcelona, which is great if you don't have two kids or you have more than one buggy. And so like Ava clearly can't walk 19 kilometers, Emma clearly can't walk 19 kilometers. So more than half of this walk, this time in the city, was us carrying one of the kids and like our kids they aren't full-grown adult human males like they're, they're small until you're carrying them like 19 kilometers but like what we started i started to realize is like dude you guys are getting so heavy like as you begin to walk and do this and like just picture that picture carrying your kid around for a while picture just carrying a grown man around on a mats like this is exhausting this is heavy like this is difficult thing that they're doing this is a significant-sized hole. Not only are they carrying him to the house, they carry him up either the steps or the roof. They dig this hole. They lower him down. Like, this is, this is quite a, an exercise. This is quite a lot of effort that has been exerted here. And man, every time I read this story, the question that pops into my mind is this, is what if we did everything in our power to get our friends and our family in audience with Jesus? What if we were like these guys? What if we were willing to do whatever it takes? What if we were willing to do anything that needed to be done to get our friends an audience with Jesus? Guys, what if our compassion was greater than our comfort? Because it is not comfortable carrying a full-size man. It is not comfortable digging a hole. I assume it's not comfortable digging a hole in a roof of somebody that's you, not your house. Like, it is not comfortable to lower someone down, but their compassion for their friend is greater than their comfort, and they are willing to do whatever it takes so that they can, this guy can gain audience with Jesus. Let me just ask you really quickly, what are some roofs that you need to dig through for some friends? What are some steps, what are some things that you need to do so that your friends can gain audience with Jesus? A few weeks ago, one of my buddies, Corbin, he has, he has two boys, uh, four and two and he posted this video on instagram uh, of his two boys at the playground and so they were trying to get up on this trapeze bar and the four-year-old could reach the trapeze bar fine but the two-year-old he was like stretching as high as he could he couldn't quite get it and so the the older brother he gets down on his hands and knees and so that his little brother can climb up on his back to grab the grab the bar it reminded me of this picture i think i've shown a few of you before Um, this is, this is lay-down-your-life-for-your-buddy kind of love. But like, this, is just kind of, this is what it reminds me of, is like being willing to do whatever it takes to, to get an audience with Jesus. Like What if, are, are we, what if we do that? Are, are we like these friends? Are we willing to do? Are we willing to lay down our comfort? Are, this, is, this is a dude's bathroom. It's gross, all right? Are we willing to lay down our comfort so that people can gain audience with Jesus? and these friends are willing to do whatever it takes their persistent faith begins to it, it's one of the themes that we see in Mark's gospel is that persistent faith is often like it, Jesus applauds this when there's obstacles or when there's difficulties that arise i mean just think about like think about the way this story could have gone read just look at verse 4 again with me It says they couldn't get to him because to, they couldn't get him to Jesus because of the crowd what if the story stopped there? It'd be a terrible story. But like, what if, it, what if that ended there? They couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd. Well, we, we tried. We, 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 we took our day off. We got you here, but sorry, bud. We can't do it. And, and we just read like Jesus is actually teaching the, about God. It's like, I mean, Jesus is, is surely too busy. Like, what if the story stops here? Like, maybe one day, friend, when we're all off again, we can try this again. Maybe we'll get here a little bit earlier and see what happens. Like, what would have happened if the story stops here? But the story doesn't stop there. They go up on the roof. They dig a hole. They let this guy down. And sometimes I wonder, how close are some of our friends to gaining audience with Jesus and we just give up? How close could some of our friends be to gaining audience with Jesus, but then we just throw in the towel, oh, the crowd's too big. The, the stairs are too steep. The roof's too tough. Letting him down, the, lowering down is just too much work. Like, I wonder how close to some people are actually getting to know Jesus before we just, like, oh, the crowd's too much, too busy, too much going on. And I love the literal translation for what these guys do to their friend. The literal translation is they unroof the roof. I love that. No stone left unturned. There is no roof left unroofed. They are willing to do whatever it takes so that their friend can gain audience with Jesus. Keep reading verse 5. So, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. Don't miss that statement. Seeing their faith, the faith of the friends. The faith of the friends is the thing that helps get this guy healed. Surely this guy too has faith. But the faith of these friends who are willing to do whatever it takes, this man is is healed. And so just think about the the friends in the story for a second. Put yourself in, in their shoes for a second. Spiritually, who are you standing in the gaps for? How is your faith helping people Gain audience with Jesus. How is your faith helping people to be healed? How is your faith helping people to, to, be, to be closer to Jesus? These guys, it's their faith that, that gets them healed. Like what, who, who are we doing this for? Who are you carrying? Who are you hanging tight to? Who are you clinging to to, to refuse to let walk away? Who are you refusing to let, like just leave and, and refusing to, to give up on? Who is that person? I mean, as a friend. Think about the the paralyzed man for a second. Spiritually, like, who is holding you? Who's holding you accountable? Who is holding you faithful? Whose faith is helping you get closer to Jesus? This week, I had the unfortunate opportunity to to discover a a sin issue in my life. And so, like, during our Sabbath day, I was praying, and and God decided that would be a really good time to, to let me in on a little sin issue that I had going on. And I, I didn't know this that has been going on, but like I, I discovered that I have had a critical heart and a critical spirit towards people. And so I was thinking about this, and I was praying about that. And finally, I was like, I wanted to justify it and be like, well, if, if they just put, would have been nicer. Or if that would have just gone better, I wouldn't have been critical because it would have been perfect, and I wouldn't have to be critical about it. I, that is what I wanted to do. If you're anything like me, you can justify your sin really well. I, I could justify it. But as I was like, thinking through it, I was like, all right, I feel like I need to talk to someone about this. And so I, I, I talked to Tiffany. I'm like, hey, so I feel like this is going on. And it's like, well, well, now that you say so, now that you say that, and like very lovingly, like I don't want you to think it wasn't lovingly, but very lovingly, he's like, yeah, I, I saw this in you here and here. And I was like, okay. Because if I wouldn't have said something to her, I could have justified it really well. I could have got worried about it. And so then I had to like, take some time. To confess my sin. I had to ask for some apology from some people. I had to like, ask for forgiveness because I, I realized that like, there was this friend in my life who helped me see that I had some issues going on. And so who are those friends for you? Who are those friends for you who are there holding you accountable, who are holding you and helping you get closer to Jesus? And as much as I love reading through this story, as much as I love like, what this story teaches us about friendship and, and the way that we should live intentionally in our lives, it teaches us even more about Jesus. So let's keep reading the story. Verses 6 and 7 it said, but some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This, this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Now, this is Jesus' first run-in with the religious leaders in Mark's gospel. It's not going to be his last. Next chapter, they're going to try to kill him. They're going to start plotting to kill him. It's not going to take long. But he has this run-in with Jesus. And and what is it? Or Jesus has this run-in with the Pharisees. Like, what is it about Jesus that makes the Pharisees upset? It's that he's forgiving sin. It's that he is saying, I am on equal footing with God. And they are saying, no, no, no. Jesus, only God can do that. And Jesus says, uh-huh, correct, that's right. And, and Jesus noticed the statement. He says, your sins are forgiven. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, God forgives your sin. The, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they clearly know what Jesus is, is talking about here. Look at the accusation, blasphemy. Look at what happens. Like they clearly understand what is going on here. And in order to make this even more well-known, Jesus doubles down again in verse 10 where he calls himself the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he is saying, like, the authority that God has in heaven is the same authority that I have on earth. Now, this phrase, the Son of Man, I'm just going to go ahead and and acknowledge, like, acknowledge, this is a really complicated topic. And so I'm going to give us just a very brief overview of the Son of Man. If you want to get into this, like, there's like thousands, literally thousands of articles that are written by people who are a lot smarter than me about the Son of Man. There are literally just books that are written only about this topic, and so there's a lot. So I'm just going to kind of follow us through the scriptures, help us to kind of see where this idea comes from and where it begins to flow from, and what is Jesus actually saying when he says he is the Son of Man. So it goes all the way back to, to Mark, or not Mark, well, it is here in Mark, Daniel 7. Pick up in, in Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, Daniel is having this dream. He's having this vision. And as he does, there is like all kinds of crazy creatures that are going on. There is insane animals that are happening. Like this is, it's just madness that's going on. And and what we begin to find out is that these creatures, they represent the, the rulers of the world. They represent the different kingdoms that are going on. And then in Daniel 7, starting in verse 13 and 14, Daniel gets another vision. He says this, he says, as the vision continued that night, I saw someone like the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that the people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. And so this is who he sees. This is who Jesus. This is what Jesus is picking up on is that Son of Man in Daniel 7 who has sovereignty, who has authority, whose kingdom will never end, who, who has rule and reign over all of creation. That is what Jesus is picking up on, and that is what he is saying here in Mark chapter 2. He's saying, hey, that, that's me. And what we begin to see is this, the Son of Man statement. It's used twice here and then in chapter 2, and then it's used 12 times from chapter 8 on because it's discussing about what Jesus will come and do. If we are to fast forward to the end of Jesus's life, in Matthew chapter 26, Jesus is on trial. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders ask Jesus, they ask him, are you the Messiah? And Jesus says, you've you've said it. So, what you've said is correct. And he says, and next you are going to see the Son of Man coming down on a cloud in glory. And they just, just yell, what they, what are, What's the accusation? Again, Blasphemy, He's saying he's God. They tear their robes, they're upset with him, and they're like, "Do we need to hear anything else? He is worthy of death." Then if we flip to, to Acts one, Acts one, verse, verse nine. So we went through Acts and for three months or three summers, and we got to hear in Acts 1:8, "You will be my witnesses." And after all of that beautiful passage happens in, in verse nine. This is what happens. Is after saying this, he was taken into a cloud while they were watching, and they could see him no longer. So here, here's the Son of Man in a cloud ascending into heaven. If we flip to, to Acts seven, Stephen is going to be the first martyr of the Christian faith, and he is going to be he's about to die, and he has this opportunity to he looks up into heaven. <coughs> excuse me. And this is what in Acts seven verses. 55 and 56 says this. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw God standing at the place, uh, saw Jesus standing at the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, Look, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. It continues on. Like Paul, Paul in Philippians 2. Paul picks up on this idea, he picks up on this, this, this concept as he talks about this beautiful Christ song that, we, that we're singing. So Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, it says this, talking of Jesus, says, Therefore God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above every other names. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every... And on heaven and on earth and under the earth, every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And so Luke is saying, like, this is what we're going to do to Jesus. We are going to bow down and worship. And if it's not God, then that's, that's idolatry. And so we, this, this is what we see. And it continues on. You can flip to Revelation 7. Story continues. In Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, it says this. John, he's getting a view into heaven. It says, after I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the tomb and before the Lamb, they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hand, and they were shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from God, <clears throat> comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. All right, so that was, that's a brief stroke. Like, we could go much deeper, but like, it starts in Daniel 7 with the Son of Man having authority over all the earth. It goes to, to Philippians 2 where all of earth is going to bow down before the Son of Man, before Jesus. It ends in Revelation 7 where he says salvation comes from the Son of Man. And so this is like this powerful statement that, that Jesus is saying It's very complex. And so what Jesus is wanting us to understand here in Mark 2, the reason Jesus is letting us in on this, Jesus is saying, not every human can have the authority that I have, but I, this particular human, can have the authority on on earth. And so like Jesus in this short 12 verses shows us just kind of the power that he has, the divinity that he has, the 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 authority that he has. Look at the things that he does. First thing we've already talked about, he forgives sin. That's that's thing number one. Only God can do that. Second thing he does is he answers people's thoughts. Look at this verses six through eight. Jesus says your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of the religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins Jesus immediately knew immediately what they were thinking, and he said to them, Why do you question this in your hearts? There's a heavy bit of irony here. As the, as the religious leaders are, are questioning how Jesus can do this thing, he's, he's reading their minds about what they're questioning. And what we see in the Old Testament, all throughout the Old Testament, it is God who can know people's hearts. And not just like their, their heart, but like their motives. Everything, the emotional seat, where everything flows, that's what we're beginning to see here. And so not only does Jesus forgive, not only does he know thoughts, see, is the obvious one that we see, he, he heals this guy. Verses 9 through 12. Jesus continues on, he says, Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked through the stunned onlookers. I love this statement that Jesus says. Jesus says, what is easier, to to say your sins are forgiven or to heal a guy? It's a trick question both of them are hard, like both of them are difficult, and like Jesus is just like, yeah, they're both hard, and I'm just going to do both. I think Jesus was like the original hashtag boss, right? He's just like, I've got this, and Jesus does this, and and truly, if we think about it, I mean, it is, it's easier to say, we'll put that in quotation marks, that your, that your sin is forgiven. There is no proof that is required of that. I mean, yeah, you could be killed for blasphemy, but sure, like put that aside. It's easier to say that your sins are forgiven, like, if I say, hey, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk, like, there's some proof that is going to be required there. You're going to be able to tell if I don't do that correctly. And so Jesus is saying, like, this is, this is the thing. And what I love is Jesus does a miracle that they can see to help them believe the miracle that they can't see. And what they begin to do, is they, the way that this ends, is they are amazed, and they praise God. I mean, the, obviously the teachers of the religious law, they're not convinced. They're going to continue to butt heads with Jesus. They're going to they're kill him for blasphemy. And just a few chapters later, they're going to try to push him off a cliff. Like, they don't, they don't believe him. They're not convinced of this. I mean, the, the teachers of the religious law, they have failed to grasp and to accept who Jesus was. They've missed out on the healing that Jesus offers because they haven't accepted who he was. And so the same thing is true for us is is your view of Jesus will determine the direction of your life. Your view of Jesus, it will determine the direction. It will determine the destination. It will determine where you, where you end up. And maybe just put it a little more practical. Your, uh, your actions of what you say of your view of Jesus, more than just your view of Jesus, but the way you actually act about Jesus will determine the direction of your life. And so we see with this paralyzed man. They take him, their friends take him to Jesus. They lower him down in front of him. And the paralyzed man, and he's there in front of Jesus. And Jesus does something that I don't think we would expect him to do. Like once again in verse 5, Jesus says, My child, your sins are forgiven. Now i got to be real honest. As I read this, as I've read the first chapter of Mark, and I see that Jesus says, My child, your sins are forgiven. My first thought is that's it, like Jesus. You just you've healed you've healed Peter's mother-in-law. You've cast out demons. You've healed a paralyzed or a, a lep- guy with leprosy, and 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 that yeah, having our sins forgiven is great. But like I, this is just my thought. It's like Jesus. That's it. That's all that you're going to do. Everything that we've seen Jesus do. But as I've as I mentioned at the start, like short of the resurrection, this is my favorite story in the Gospels. And this week, as i was studying through the story, there's been something like. Somehow, like, I've just, I've missed it. Like, I've taught this story, I've heard it taught on, and somehow, some way, I've, I've missed what is actually going on here in this story. I've missed the progression of what happens. First thing that Jesus heals is the spiritual. Later on, he is going to do what we think he should do. He, he is going to heal the physical. But we cannot miss the progression of what Jesus does. Jesus deals with the, the spiritual before he deals... With the physical. And here's the thing. People do need physical healing, sure. But they need spiritual healing as well. What separates the church from Madra or or Tidy Towns, whatever, fill in the blank, whatever organization, what separates us from them, not just us, but the church as, as a whole, is the type of spiritual healing that we can offer people. Like, because people do not just need physical healing. They need spiritual healing. This is what Jesus sees in this man originally. Like, this is what he needs more than anything else. Walking is great. I enjoy doing it. But, like, what we need is something so much more, something so much greater. Physical healing is a conduit for spiritual healing, as we see this in the Gospels. When people are healed, it's almost always a, a response of faith. So here's an idea that that we've got to get that's, that's hard for us to sometimes grasp. Is your spiritual health is more important to God than your physical health. Now, it's not to say God doesn't care about your physical health. He does. But he cares more about your your spiritual health, your spiritual life. That's what he cares more about. God cares more about your soul than he does your your spleen, your spine, whatever. He cares more about your heart than he does your hip. Like Jesus cares about our our spiritual health more than than anything else. And let me just ask you a question. Do your prayers reflect that this is true? Do the way that you pray reflect that God cares about me spiritually more than me physically? Are your prayers more of like, God, I need a new job so that I can make more money, so I can eat better? God, I, I, could you just heal this, this thing that I got going on? Like, or are your prayers, are they spiritually focused? Not that praying for those things are bad. But are the way that we live our life reflect the fact that God cares more about our spiritual lives than, and our souls. And so he says to this man, he says, your sins are forgiven. And maybe as you read that statement, like the question that maybe pops up in your mind is, Okay, then is he paralyzed because of sin? Like is that what is called what is that what's going on here? In the old testament and even in parts of the world today, even some of us maybe even believe this, is that that sickness or death or disease or whatever it may be is always a a a side effect of our of our sin. And like this people in Jesus' day would have believed that. And if you think back to think to John 9. A blind man comes to Jesus and they ask him the question, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents? So this is the idea of the day. And so is, is this what's going on? Is, is this man like, is this sin causing this to happen? Sometimes it is the case. Other times it's not. In John 9, Jesus says, neither of them sinned. That's not the point of the story. Or if like you want to like dive into this a bit more, just read the entire story of Job. The whole story of Job is like, you've done something wrong. And Job's like, no, I haven't. And like, yes, you have. If you didn't, this wouldn't be happening to you. Like, this is the idea of the day. And so Jesus is like, that, that's not the point of the story. We're not given any like indication whether this man had sinned that caused this or not. Sometimes, though, like, it's true, like, in our, in our lives, like, sometimes things that happen to us are a result of sin. For example, if you go out on a, a binger and you get a DUI and you lose your license, you can't go to work, you lose your job, you get hungry. Your, your hunger, result of sin, right? That, that happens at times. But other times, we, we live in a fallen world. We live in a sinful world that is, that is apart from God. And sometimes things just happen because of the sin in our world, because we are in a fallen world. But what Jesus wants to do for this guy is he knows that the root of every issue is a spiritual one. He's got to deal with the spiritual first before he can deal with the physical. Regardless of whether this guy could walk or not, what he needed truly more than anything was the forgiveness of sins. This is what we all need more than anything. And so Jesus does finally, in our story, he does heal him. He goes on to say, he says, in the end of verse uh, 10, then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. The man jumped up, his mat, grabbed his mat, and walked through the crowd, and, or, he walked through the, ston- the stunned onlookers. And I love this, some of the things that Jesus does here. Like, just think of, like, the physical healing that has to happen. Like, this guy, we don't know how long he's been paralyzed, but we know from, like, almost any kind of injury that happens, like, to relearn to walk takes a lot of time. This dude, all right, cool. His muscles are automatically strengthened and he's walking. Not only that, like, he can bend down to pick up his mat. So he can, he can do that. He can carry his mat. He's strong enough in his arms now to carry his mat. Like the, All these things that just begin to happen in an instant that, that God does for him. I just love the fact that, that what he came to Jesus being carried on, he carries out under his arm and he leaves that. So Jesus goes and, and he heals this guy physically. And once again, it's a conduit for, for spiritual healing because the crowd, they praise God. And maybe as we read a story like this, as you think back to our series last week, or our last series, where we want to be like Jesus, do what Jesus did. Like maybe you read this story and you're like, okay, good story. Great story. Like, but how can I do what Jesus did? Like, if you're anything like me, I have a hard enough time getting my kid off the floor of a temper tantrum, let alone healing a guy on the floor. Like, how can I how can I how can I do this? There's there's a few things we could see, but there's one thing in particular that I want us to, to focus in on. We aren't able to heal people, sure, but there is a posture that Jesus has here that I think we would all do well to adopt. And it's the posture of intentionality. Like, look at, look at Jesus. He is completely intentional with this guy. Like, Jesus is doing something important. He is preaching about the kingdom. He's preaching the good news. But Jesus, he chooses to be intentional to this guy. Just... Think with me for a second. What was it about Jesus that made these guys think it was okay to do something like this? Like, what was it about Jesus that made somebody think it was a good idea to dig a hole in a roof? Like, what was it about Jesus that they thought that this would be okay? I just, I just picture these friends, like, they're, like, they get there and there's this crowd and they're like, okay, um, I wonder how many ideas that they went up with until they, came, until they landed on this one. Like, just think about this. I just imagine them like throwing up all kinds of ideas and just, I guess that's what we're going to try. They circle back to this one. Like, what was it about Jesus that made them think that this was remo- remotely a good idea? Jesus lived and he loved people with intentionality. And this was very clear from the way that Jesus lived and the way that Jesus loved. And they dare to risk it all because they believe this is who Jesus is. Listen to what Jesus says. Once again, he says, my child, your sins are forgiven. That phrase, my child, is translated literally, son. It's this deep love that he has for this person. What I love is this man isn't a distraction, but a dearly loved child. That's what Jesus sees him as. And I just wonder, is that, the, is that true of us? I've had a difficult part with part of this story this week. There's, there's a contrast that happens. There's Jesus who is living with this posture of intentionality where everyone is welcome in my presence, where, where people who are in need of healing, it doesn't matter the, the steps that have to be taken, like they are welcome here. And that's as a church, that's what I want us to be, what I want us to be about. But there's a contrast that happens with the crowd. You guys, you guys caught this? There's this huge crowd that's happening. These men can't get to Jesus. What is it in the crowd that looks at this paralyzed man and be like, sorry, dude, you should have come sooner. Sorry man, we're not gonna let you up to the door to see Jesus. We've been here since 4 a.m. You should have got here, it's 8 now, you should have got here sooner. Like, what is it? Like, and the reason that's difficult to me, because I can see myself in the crowd. I can see myself there at times thinking, well, yeah, like this person, you're you're in need, but I've have you seen my to-do list today? Have you seen everything I gotta get done? Have you seen what's happening? I want to hear Jesus teach. I want to meet Jesus too. Like, why should you get ahead of me? And like, this crowd, like they don't let Jesus by. They don't let these guys by to see Jesus. But there's Jesus who is just here with this great intentionality and just like, sure. He's thrilled that they are here. And the story ends with this incredible statement, we have never seen anything like this before. In Jesus God is doing something unique, unprecedented, and unrivaled. And as we continue to track through the story of Mark, in Mark chapter 10 it says that, that Jesus is going to do the impossible. The Son of Man is going to lay down His life as a ransom for many. He's going to defeat the, the, the undefeatable foe. He's going to take care of sin once and for all. And Jesus, like He is bringing in this kingdom, and what I, what I think is powerful and we cannot forget is that every healing in the Gospels foreshadows the ultimate healing that is going to come. This paralyzed man, as awesome as it must have been for him to walk again, as far as I know, he still died. Like the guy who, Peter's mother-in-law, she still died. But there is coming an ultimate healing, a final healing when Jesus is going to come and he's going to set all things right and all things new. Let me go ahead and just pray for us. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you.